So after he's been keeping a low, low profile, unusually low for months, since July, he's back. Let's talk about Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu and what his career says about power in modern Russia. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. As I mentioned in previous podcasts, one of the striking things of this war, one of the many striking aspects of it, has been precisely the way that Sergei Shoigu, although he's defence minister, has almost been pretending for a long time that he isn't, and trying to basically distance himself. And sure, it seems to be that at one point there was a genuine health issue, but I, I, I can't help but wonder if even that was slightly played to allow him to drop out of sight for a while. But July has been very different. We've seen a whole slew of new speeches from him, including the splashy and, as near as I can tell, entirely uncorroborated claim that six of the new HIMARS multiple launch rocket systems that the Americans provided the Ukrainians have been targeted and destroyed. We have seen him even actually moving into a what can only really be described, frankly, as a troll role in saying that the Defence Ministry was going to be convening an international anti-fascist congress, which is an obvious attempt to try and sort of seize the high ground and use that, no doubt, to uh, claim again that Ukraine is in the grip of neo-Nazis and similar nonsense. And then, particularly interesting, I thought, At the Navy Day celebrations at the end of July, we saw Putin and Shoigu very sort of prominently together as they toured the Island of Forts Museum and History Park outside St. Petersburg, a a new development. And they were being shown around by Xenia Shoigu, his youngest daughter, who herself had been somewhat uh, out of view ever since there was something of a furore when she posted an Instagram shot of herself and her kid wearing what looked very much like sort of pointedly chosen Ukrainian blue and yellow. Certainly it was enough to actually get her to to cancel her social media feed. So there also seems to have been, after a certain period of uh, coolness, a reconciliation between Shoigu and Putin. Now, my interpretation of this is that Shoigu is now kind of recognising the new normal. That For a period, he was trying to distance himself from the war, precisely because he didn't think it was going to be that successful, and he didn't want to be caught in the fallout. But I think now he realises that actually there's no real room for these kind of games. There is going to be a long conflict of one sort or another with Ukraine and with the West. He cannot really distinguish 
distinguish himself from his own military, and more to the point, he can't do so quite so pointedly. Even you know, Putin and co. are aware of that, and therefore he has knuckled under, realized that he has to do his bit, whether it's out of patriotism or whether it's out of a desire for political self-preservation, and he's on duty, and he's doing what I would suggest he does best, which is PR, and I'll come to that later on. And in the process, what's, I think, become pretty clear is that Shoigu is now much, much less of a policy shaper than he was in the past, and rather more just simply as an executor. I mean, he still retains his relationship with Putin and so forth. He's not quite down to the level of being one of the technocrats, just sort of managing things for the boss. But, but something has changed, and that gives us an opportunity. It gives us an opportunity to also try and tease out not just something about Shoigu, but something about modern Putinist politics. And so that's what I'm going to try and do today. The thing that strikes me is this. I think power in late Putinism, first of all, look, is very, very clearly personalized. This is, at the top of the system, um, a, a pseudo-monarchy, for want of a better word, in which there is a court around Putin, and your personal relationship with the boss matters massively. It's not the only factor, but it is an exceedingly important one. At the same time, this is what I've called elsewhere an ad hocracy. Now, what do I mean by that? It is not a totally sort of fluid anarchy, but nonetheless, what it is clear is that whereas the state is still essentially defined by institutions, which have their particular roles, above those institutions, the people who actually run them, it's a much, much more fluid and personalistic structure. So in some ways, we have institutions defining the state, but the court itself is fluid in which people actually do not necessarily have the power or the roles that their formal job title would suggest. You know, there are some people with what would look like important jobs. Classic one would be the Minister of Internal Affairs, but one could also look at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which would seem to give them power in theory, but in practice they don't in part for reasons relating to their institutions, but above all relating to their relationship with Putin. And others who are disproportionately powerful, but also who may well have responsibilities that are totally distinct from those that their job would suggest. So, you know, we, I've talked many a time about Nikolai Patrushev, the Security Council, and uh, the Secretary of the Security Council, and he will no doubt crop up today. But as well as being, in effect, national security advisor, he's also, for example, largely the curator for the Balkan region. So you have all kinds of, of other ways in which people fulfill other roles. So that's, I think, what makes it an ad hocracy. But thirdly, I think it's clear that power is constantly contested. It's contested laterally and vertically. You have institutions, factions, power blocks, even what we could think of as philosophical... Uh, communities who have particular views about what the state should be doing, what, what Russia should be, and so forth, f competing with each other. You also have competition vertically in the sense of regional elements trying to maintain their own autonomy. You know, all, all of this, is, it is a constantly competing arena, precisely because of the fluidity. 
there is so much more to play for. It is not just simply the case of one institution struggling another against another for budgets or perquisites, or we might, as we might find in the West, in which, let's say, you know, everyone is competing for their own slice of the budget pie. No, we also have a situation in Russia in which institutions are essentially trying to devour each other, and in which precisely almost everything is on the table. That actually, yes, the Ministry of Defence can end up essentially running Syria. You know, this, is, this can happen in this much more fluid, autocratic state. And what all this means, in my opinion, is I've been thinking about this. Really, I think there are four ingredients to power, especially power on an individual basis at the top of this system. The first one I'm calling relational credibility. In other words, your plausibility, your capacity successfully to lobby the boss, is really a byproduct of your personal relationship with him. You know, does he trust you? Does he feel that you've got your head screwed on right? Does he think that you understand him? And more to the point, also, are you able to frame what you want in terms that will matter to him? And this really leads into the second form of power, which is what I'm calling cognitive dominance. There is no question but that Putin can basically decide anything he wants. There are no meaningful checks and balances except at the very, very extreme ends of possible actions. You know, if he decided to, I don't know, nuke Kiev tomorrow, that may well create some kind of response. But even then, it probably wouldn't be one that would be mediated through formal institutional approaches. It would just be a bunch of people saying, he's gone mad, we need to do something about it. Now, cognitive dominance is not to challenge Putin's capacity to be the, the, the decider, but instead to be able to frame his view of the situation, his notion of what options he has at his disposal, and his sense of which of these options are most uh, agreeable, most likely to succeed, most cost-effective, and so forth. And look, the caricature way of thinking about it is if you go back to that classic British sitcom, Yes Minister, that then became Yes Prime Minister, in which you have the clueless politician being led about the, around by the nose by his urbane chief civil servant. Now, it's not quite like that, but nonetheless, it is clear that if you are able to paint a picture of the world for Putin, then you actually have a massive form of power, because he will then, in effect, be choosing from options that you lay out and options that you've had a chance to frame. You know, the classic approach is you, you, you give someone the option that you want them to take, an option that is ridiculously extreme one way and an option that is ridiculously extreme the other. Again, I mean, I'm not convinced that that's exactly how they're handling Putin, but nonetheless, it is clear that there is a form of handling that takes place through this cognitive dominance. Of course, how you actually frame it will very much depend on the third form of power, which is narrative legitimacy. And let me take a sidebar point here. The reason I think this is so important is I do not believe there is an ideology to Putinism. And I don't think there really is a Putinism, but we use it as a handy shorthand. Instead, there is a narrative. Now, what, what's the difference? Now, ideology essentially is a worldview that is a way of reinterpreting the past in the name of creating a certain future. It is something that actually says there is something bigger than us, something that actually must constrain and drive our policymaking. 
narrative may well end up driving future policy, but really it is based on the past. It is based on this is our understanding of how we got to where we are, and our path here should in some ways condition where we go from here. Now, the thing is, that does not really constrain the future. I mean, ultimately, my kind of quick and dirty test of whether something is an ideology is, does it actually constrain the policymakers? In other words, do they find themselves thinking, I would really like to do this thing, however, I can't because it is contrary to the basic tenets of our beliefs about the world. In, in their own way, however cynical they had become by the end, the Soviet leadership, certainly and especially rather in, I would say, the pre- and post-Stalin eras, did find themselves to a degree constrained by their own ideology. In Putin's case, I think what we actually see is a regular rewriting of the narrative in order to justify what he wants to do today. So whether it's in terms of mooting joining NATO in the early noughts, or whether it's launching a brutal and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine in 2022, you know, it is based on a, a rewritten, reinterpreted past narrative. So, I mean, I think th this, this, is a, this is a key thing. Essentially, one could say a narrative is, is that much more cynical or whatever. I, I mean, look, ideologies can, can be used in all kinds of cynical ways. But I think it, it, it is more that this is what substitutes for some kind of an ideology. There is, after all, this gaping void at the heart of this often monumentally cynical state structure. And it's a gaping void that for the reasons of humanity, we, we need to fill. We need to f very few people, I think, are capable of actually thinking, I am a total ruthless cynic, and I will do whatever is in my interests. There is a certain cognitive dissonance that creeps in, and narrative is what creeps in to fill that void and to give people that sense that what they are doing is right and proper or maybe absolutely necessary. So there is this narrative. But what that does mean is that, again, you are going to be much, much more powerful in this system if you can frame what you want to advocate for, what is frankly in your interests, in terms of the narrative. So, and also, obviously, if you can shape that narrative, because this is a constantly fluid thing. Narratives are that much more plastic than ideologies. Narratives can precisely be rewritten and reinterpreted. So there, there is a real power to those people who are able to create and use the prevailing narrative in these kind of systems. And the final for ingredient, shall we say, of power is, I think, you know, the uh, individual interests at, at play. That people are also creating coalitions, of course, but also have their own interests. You know, whether it's just simply a straightforward thing about corruption, whether it's their family, whether it's their patronage networks, whether it's supporting their home region, you know, all of these things. And on the one hand, they allow you to sort of broker certain alliances, but they also distract and weaken in ways, that, again, I will come to. So these, I, as I say, are, I think, the four ingredients of personal power in late Putinism. Relational credibility, cognitive dominance, narrative legitimacy, and the indirect interests. And as a result of that, I think real power is to be found when an individual can harness institutional muscle 
to their personal access and credibility with the body, as Putin is known within the presidential administration. So it's not just simply about being his mate. It's not just simply about controlling some powerful institution or bloc. It's about really the two. So you know, if you look at someone like, like Patrushev, you know, this is a man who, after all, has got a long and positive relationship with Putin. They go back. They have very similar backgrounds. You know, they're, they're both from both the sort of the St. Petersburg uh, crew, but also this, you know, obviously the, the KGB mafia, shall we say. So a very long relationship. Putin trusts him. That gives you a high degree of relational credibility. And also his position gives him considerable cognitive dominance, given the degree to which the Security Council Secretariat really sits on and controls so much of the materials that reach Putin's desk. And he himself, as I said, has become de facto national security advisor. That also allowed him to, in many ways, frame the, the, the new narrative. And he can do that in particular because it's not just him, but he also has a considerable institutional basis. I mean, the FSB, he was director of the Federal Security Service, and quite frankly, Bortnikov is in many ways still very much Patrushev's man. Bortnikov has his own interests, but he's certainly not going to in any way challenge those of, of Patrushev. So, he, so Patrushev has both the Security Council Secretariat, which he's been on, in charge of long enough to basically shape it in his image, and also the FSB. Now, it's an interesting question, actually, what happens when Bortnikov goes. His successor, which may well be a man by the name of Karolyov, obviously is publicly genuflecting to Patrushev, may not be quite so much in Patrushev's pocket. But anyway, that's something to see for the future. All told, that gives, in a way, Patrushev a wide range of power. But what about Shoigu in this context? What really has been his strength? I mean, look, he's, a, he's a, clearly a very competent organiser. I mean, he's an engineer, and it's quite interesting that uh, certainly talking to people who have had interactions with Shoigu and so forth, um, it is clear that, that he has something of an engineer's mindset. You know, you identify problems, you look at the resources at your disposal, you work out a plan for dealing with it, quite, quite methodical. Um, so it's not just his, his training, but essentially his, his approach. He's in many ways, and has been for a long time really now, an institutional engineer. He's really, I suppose, you know, we would call in, in corporate terms, he's something of an institutional turnaround specialist. He's someone who absolutely is at his best when he's trying to take some dysfunctional institution and fix it. This is absolutely what he did when he was Minister of Emergency Situations. I mean, the ministry itself was when he took it over in 1991. And it's worth noting, actually, I mean, he was 1991 to 2012. This is a really long tenure. But when he took it over, I mean, it was in absolute crisis. It was one of the least efficient and most corrupt institutions in the, or collections of institutions, I should say, in the late Soviet and then early post-Soviet era. And he really did manage to, to fix it really quite well. And so much so that, you know, it actually is now one of the organizations which has some of the best sort of public ratings, shall we say. And he did this in a way that also allowed him to acquire all kinds of other forms of power and forms of legitimacy, whether it's in terms of stepping in to handle uh, peacekeeping missions, whether it was actually in using, because Ministry of Emergency Situations isn't quite like a, a Western 
you know, Civil Defence and Fire Brigade Agency. It has its own special forces. It has its own arsenals. He was actually looking to hand out weapons to Yeltsin supporters during the October 1993 constitutional crisis, which was ultimately uh, ended by Yeltsin's willingness and capacity to deploy the army against his own parliament. So, you know, actually, at this time, he, he used it to build up personal power, and he used it also, his position, to actually fix the institution. And to a considerable degree, and this is something, again, I'm, I'm going to come to, he did so by building a narrative for the Ministry of Emergency Situations, by selling to its own members a sense of themselves that was rather different, that was actually much more upright, much more heroic, much more coherent than, frankly, the reality was. Um, it is a fake-it-till-you-make-it approach to institution building, but quite frankly, it worked. And at the same time, you know, because he managed to create a public persona that was both reassuring as well as competent, I mean, the idea that uh, he would present himself publicly to take charge at every major national disaster. I mean, a lot of people assumed that that was going to be the, the ending of his career. You know, why on earth do you want to constantly be associated in the public mind with disasters? But nonetheless, Shoigu did it, and in fact, it became actually something of, of a reassuring sight. Don't worry, Shoigu's on the scene, he's handling it. So, you know, again, this is about performance, this is about narrative, this is about PR. And as a result of his standing in 1999, he became leader of Unity, the political party that was one of the precursors to United Russia in 2001, very much the, the vessel to support uh, Putin's rise to the presidency. And then in due course, he became governor of Moscow region, which is again an exceedingly important position, one that very much goes to a safe pair of hands, not least because also it offers some massive, eye-wateringly massive opportunities for corruption, with arguably much less scope for public scrutiny than if you are Moscow mayor. But anyway, he didn't really have long in place because then what happened is Defence Minister Anatoly Serdyukov, who had been facing an almost open rebellion by his own officers, but what actually brought him down was what in tabloid parlance we could call a sex scandal. Um, you know, definitely not good to be caught with your mistress when your father-in-law, Zukov, is a much more powerful and much better connected figure. So he had to go... And there was a sense, precisely, that what the military needed was an institutional turnaround specialist. And this is what Shoigu was. So there he was, you know, again, crucial position. Who are you going to call? Shoigu. And again, what he did was actually really quite striking. I mean, in, in the face of uh, a, a military, a Ministry of Defence and a general staff that was in absolute disarray, he once again deployed his capacity to use PR. He won back the high command, in part by some sort of very high-profile reversals of certain Serdyukov reforms, particularly reconstituting some especially historic divisions, by being much more visible in uniform, whereas Serdyukov had always made a point of appearing in a suit, and just generally by, by talking up the military at every opportunity. So he was able to shake the money tree a little bit more. He was able to ensure that, that people could feel that they were being listened to. And actually, 
the reforms, the exceedingly controversial reforms that Serdyukov and his chief of the general staff, Makarov, had instituted were largely continued under Shoigu and new chief of the general staff, Gerasimov, but the point is Shoigu managed the whole process that much better. So look, what has been his secret? What has been his route to power? Well, again, as I said, it's, it's PR. Personally, in terms of building a relationship with Putin, it's worth noting that Shoigu is the only person in Putin's close circle, a friend, shall we say, not just simply a, a, a trusted hench person, who has done so, who's joined that circle without having been in Putin's uh, sort of entourage from the KGB or St. Petersburg days. He's the only person who's made it in, and by all accounts, you know, he did so very deliberately. You know, he set out to, in effect, find the right way of wooing Putin, and the key element of that were these, you know, sometimes rightly derided, you know, long you know, walking holidays in Siberia and such like. But the point is they allowed Shoigu to make a, a sort of an opportunity, a space for him to sort of get to know Putin, for Putin to get to know him. Shoigu always made sure that Putin is the one who benefited best from the photo opportunities. It's quite interesting, actually, how often you, you see, once the cameras are out, Shoigu sort of fades a little way in, in, into the background. He knows not to try and uh, out-to-macho the Mujik-in-chief. So, you know, there, there is his personal relationship with, with, with Putin, as well as his own um, institutional standing and sort of personal national profile. And this has manifested itself in continued personal access for a long time. I mean, in 2019, an assessment, a study that I did of the personal face-to-face -face meetings that all the various heads of the security institutions had with Putin, had Shoigu with 23% of all the meetings, second only to Patrushev with 29%. With so this is you know, a man who had a constant personal relationship with, with Putin. And that's married to a significant institutional power base. I mean, until the very recent appointment of Alexander Kurenkov, essentially Shoigu still had, again, his placeholder in charge of the Ministry of Emergency Situations. So there's that. He obviously has the Ministry of Defence increasingly sort of loyal to him. The Ministry of Defence also, because it is clearly a, a massive economic powerhouse, because of all the... the, the the contracts to whether everything from, from buying kit to feeding the troops and so forth is also a major economic player that other people seek to woo. You know, all of these gave him institutional muscle. And particularly given that he was able to sell the military to the public very effectively as the guardian of national security, but also some kind of icon of national glory. You know, all the sort of things like the kind of extraordinary khaki cathedral that he had built, his close relationship between the military and the Russian Orthodox Church, and all of these were part of institutional power building. And what this does is it highlights, again, one of the interesting uh, paradoxes, I would say, about power under Putin. That, yes, it matters to actually do your job well. It matters to be able to build strong institutions that you control. But at the same time, arguably, it matters at least as much to be able to seem to do a good job, to be able to convince the boss that you are controlling a powerful institution, there is a certain Pachemkinization of politics, and this is exactly something that, that Shoigu really had managed to master. 
And in some ways, I would suggest that this was proving to be something that was very dangerous to the system. I can't help but wonder, I have my suspicions, how far Shoigu's capacity to sell the idea that the Russian military had become this phenomenally powerful, efficient, and effective force, how far this helped nudge Putin towards the notion that a military solution to, as he saw it, the Ukraine problem was both worthwhile and achievable. Now, look, ultimately, it is clear that it was the security apparatus that, and obviously Patrushev himself that really drove the early policy. You know, but nonetheless, you know, was Putin already predisposed to think that this was going to be quick and easy precisely because of Shoigu's success in cosplaying mighty military power? And in which case, I mean, it led to obviously this catastrophic miscalculation. But either way, until very recently, this all helped explain why Shoigu seemed to be such a dramatic success, why he was being considered as even a potential successor to Putin. And what's more, he was someone who could demonstrate that from time to time he could even foil the boss's will. The classic example being in 2016 when Putin wanted to install his former bodyguard, uh, Dumin, as head of military intelligence, the GRU. Now, obviously, Shoigu couldn't just simply say no, not least because... That position is one that the president gets to appoint. But instead, he built a coalition, including, uh, interestingly enough, the Federal Security Service. He essentially made it clear that there was a consensus view that Dumin was not really up to the job and this wasn't really appropriate. And ultimately, Putin decided to, to go in a different direction and allow the general staff to appoint their own chosen candidate simply because he decided it wasn't really worth the political cost of imposing his own guy. So, I mean, that counts as a success in what is still really an absolutist system. But for all that, in hindsight, the thing that strikes me is the degree to which it was clear that Shoigu was not, going to go back to this probably overused word, he was not a narrative creator in wider political sense. You know, he was very good at creating narratives for himself, for his institution, but essentially he went with the flow. He would capitalize on the prevailing narrative that, that, that dominated at, at the level of Putin and the state. He would allow himself to be framed by it rather than to frame it. And his strength was precisely the degree to which he could then adapt to that, or at least adapt as far as he could. Because what's really clear is that since maybe 2019, certainly 2020, there has been this really quite seismic shift in how Putin sees Russia, Russia's place in the world, and the, the kind of struggle in which Russia is engaged. And this is what I've been t talking about when I talk about Putinism, Patrushevism. You know, Putin's natural view of, of Russia filtered through the practical political filter of Patrushev's deeply conspiratorial, even paranoid sense. And at that point, it's clear that, that Shoigu was beginning to be left behind. I mean, for example, if one looks at the whole framing of the, the struggle with the West, it is not that in any way he had a problem with it. You know, Shoigu is a patriot, even a nationalist, and he does indeed believe that, that Russia has some fundamental challenge there. But he was framing this not in some kind of grand civilizational terms the way Patrushev does. I mean, Patrushev basically believes that there is some kind of long-term Western conspiracy to humble and maybe even partition the Russian Federation just because. 
Shuigu, on the other hand, again, you know, sees the West as antagonistic, but on much, much more pragmatic grounds. I mean, in, in 2019, he said, our Western colleagues cannot come to terms with the fact that the era of unipolarity is irrevocably ending. And they are trying to restrain this natural process. In other words, the West, and that basically means America, got used to being top dog. And now that actually there are m more centers of power rising, it is trying desperately to hold on to that. And therefore, it is pushing against Russia precisely because Russia is not willing to, to bend the knee. So it's a geopolitical rather than civilizational um, type of, of rationale. Furthermore, as particularly with, with the rise of Patrushev, so too the intelligence and security community became that much more important in shaping Putin's view of the world. This is where it became clear the degree to which actually Shoigu lacked connections in the, the, that security and intelligence community. You know, Shoigu has a lot of connections. He, he brokered his position as Ministry of Emergency Situations to actually build quite a wide array of connections within regional politics, as well as within the sort of national technocratic elite. But he never really was interested in or successfully broke into that kind of realm. And even when he is an ally, he's not one of them. And I think that really sort of matters to them. So actually, the point when the, the, the center of power in terms of which kind of people were shifting, that also, to a degree, left Shoigu behind. And more broadly, it's worth noting that this is a man who, however much he likes to wear a uniform, he's a civilian. And he has, I would suggest, or had, who knows what he's, what he's thinking now, but certainly had ambitions and aspirations that were outside the security realm. I mean, maybe at one point, prime minister, maybe even higher than that. But in the short term, there was this notion that he will become this supercharged presidential plenipotentiary to the Siberian Federal District with a mandate and a budget to bring out some kind of massive uplift to a region that frankly needed it and has resources that, that Russia could do with exploiting more efficiently. Now, clearly, those ideas are very much in the past. There aren't the resources or the, the bandwidth of attention for that. You know, but nonetheless, I think these were the ways he was looking. He, you know, he was in his mid-60s. He clearly had at least one major job, major additional job ahead of him, maybe more than that. And I think by you know, 2020, 2021, that's where he was looking. So I think you know, for all of these reasons, we find Shoigu beginning to be left behind. He was much, much more in line with the narratives of the regime up to 2020, uh, which in some ways actually also manifests itself in how the military were thinking. We had the so-called strategy of limited actions, very much at the heart of thinking, which is basically when you have to use military force, you try and use the least military force. I mean, I'm massively shrinking, c contracting, and even caricaturing. But, you know, but the idea was, yes, military force is always an option, but you essentially aim for a minimalist approach. Well, clearly, that's long since gone. Things changed. And I would suggest that Shoigu found himself struggling to know how, quite how to respond, perhaps not even fully appreciating the degree to which the, the cognitive world of the Kremlin was changing until obviously it became way, way too late, which seems a suitable point for a break. And then we'll talk about Shoigu today and maybe even tomorrow.
Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So, with the rise of Putinism, Petrushevism, from, say, 2020 or whatever, what this meant was that Putin's views of Russian nationalism, of what great power status would mean, of his own place in history, of the perfidy of the West, all of these metastasized, and the hawks, notably Nikolai Platonovich Patrushev himself, became increasingly dominant. And I think this is where we saw the limitations of Shoigu's approach really come to the fore. Let me break this down in terms of those four elements, of those four ingredients of power. Relational credibility. Well, obviously, Shoigu had that. He had that personal relationship with Putin. But on the other hand, he was relatively new to Putin's circle. People like Patrushev, people like Kobolchuk, who very much seems to have shaped Putin's notions of Ukraine. All of these actually had a much, much longer pedigree. It's fine when Shoigu was in some ways using his connections with the boss, in contrast with people who didn't have that kind of long history. But in this respect, yes, Shoigu had a certain amount of relational credibility, but not enough. And that very much was both uh, manifested in and also exacerbated by the issue of cognitive dominance. Now, Shoigu's remit is relatively narrow, and the interesting thing about Shoigu is that he had for so long actually sought to remove himself from many of the kind of wider considerations about Russia's place in the world. It wasn't what he was interested in. I suspect it's also something that he thought would be potentially dangerous, because precisely it brings the risk of locking horns with the Patrushevs and so forth on the one hand, the Mishustins and so forth on the other. And, you know, he, he wasn't out. He's not someone who picks institutional fights. And this is one of the very striking things about Shoigu. He's managed to rise without making blood enemies within the system. And for a long time, that's actually very effective. But what this meant was, first of all, that his, his cognitive dominance kind of scope was, was very narrow. And secondly, that he, in some ways he became trapped by his own personal narratives about the military. You know, he could not turn around and say, you know, that amazingly good uh, military structure that I have bought, built at phenomenal cost to the Russian Treasury. It's actually a bit rubbish in many ways. No, I mean, he had to basically follow it through. So, you know, having sold the military to Putin, it was very, very hard for him to then try and undermine and unpick that perspective. So he basically abdicated certain areas and locked himself in in others. And of course, this all you know, ties into his capacity to present his own per- perspectives with narrative legitimacy. You know, he had not set out to shape some kind of sense of Russia's place in the world. He had, as I say, abdicated that. So because his usual habit is to work with the narratives that others have created, and has in the past done so very well, he found himself in a position in which, well, how can he work with the new narrative of Putinism, Petrushevism, 
other than to basically go go with the flow, go along with the idea that it's time for some kind of military solution to the, the quote-unquote Ukraine problem. The narrative in this respect provided a, a straitjacket rather than an opportunity for him. And he was, I would also su suggest or suspect perhaps, also weakened by the breadth of his individual interests. I mean, there are many, and clearly there's a degree to which he has to stay in with Putin. He has to stay in his current position because he has to protect his own position, his own prosperity, his own patronage networks. I mean, this is a man who, look, far be it from me to describe any particular member of the, so of the Freudian slip there, not so Soviet, but Russian elite as corrupt. And I've had it sort of presented to me yet, you know, Shoigu is just corrupt enough. Again, as ever, not to be the outlier. He's not certainly the most venal of figures, but on the other hand, you know, he has his snout in the trough enough that, you know, both he prospers, but also no one gets suspicious about this strange ascetic. You know, how, how can we forget his uh, oriental-styled mansion in Barvika? that uh, Navalny's people managed to sort of get all kinds of nice drone footage of. The fact that his family are all doing pretty well. I mean, again, I'm sure it's just simply a scurrilous rumour, but the way it was put to me is that, uh, you know, Shoigu's wife has a business which, amongst other things, puts on the big pavilions at military arms fairs and such like. And the other said, I'm, I'm sure, entirely uh, inaccurate perspective that was framed to me was, you know, if you want to make sure that you get some kind of a defence contract, you better get, you better rent a particularly expensive and lavish pavilion through Shoigu's wife's company. I mean, it's, it's a classic model. We, we had a similar approach obtaining our, under former Mayor Lushkov, whose, whose wife had a particularly interesting array of, of companies. Uh, even let's not mention, let's not forget uh, Shoigu's fabled collection of, of samurai swords. Hard to assemble all that just simply on a Russian bureaucrat's salary. So in some ways, Shoigu was—I wouldn't say distracted, but let's say—did not have the much more sort of sharp focus of some of the people within the hawkish community, who, in, in many cases, actually, yes, they. Um, again, I'm not saying anyone is frankly uncorrupt at the top of the system, but nonetheless, perhaps have less breadth. But the key thing is precisely, again, go back to this notion that, that Shoigu had ambitions and aspirations outside the defence ministry. That also, in some ways, diluted his capacity to really focus on national security issues. Because, you know, even as, frankly, even as early as 2019, it's clear he was putting a certain amount of institutional muscle behind measures, particularly for his native Tiva, where there's more or less a Shoigu cult of personality in place. So, perversely enough, Shoigu found himself pretty much disarmed in a battle of narratives. Or, if not disarmed, actually, because of his usual pragmatic approach, frankly, that he was not really interested in engaging. Who really would have thought at the time when this was happening in 2020? When actually it would seem to be in his interest, because the sort of the natural logic of, of this... Putinism, Patrushevism, and this more confrontational sense of the world is that it ensures high levels of spending continue for the Russian military. Well, you know, who would have thought that it would actually lead 
the way it did. And so what happened was this rather more geopolitically driven nationalism that was very much in tune with Shoigu's own perspectives was replaced by a much, much more uncompromising sense of an epic and existential civilizational struggle against an essentially Russophobic West. And this left Shoigu in a difficult position. As a very well-connected Russian political analyst put it to me, I think he, Shoigu, saw the political balance of power move to the hawks and knew he could do nothing to stop it. And in many ways, I mean, this was exemplified by the 21st of February, now infamous, Security Council session that we, we saw televised. You know, Patrushev framed this, this whole struggle as being something against those who, in his words, whose goal is the destruction of Russia. Shoigu supports some kind of military action, but frames it entirely on the basis of defending the people of the Donbass against the nasty Kiev. He doesn't even mention the United States. So even at that late date, we see these kind of two strands still being presented. But when it comes down to it, the battle for Putin's imagination had already been lost. And, well, the rest is history. Tragic, tragic history. So this most recent period since the start of the war until July had seen Patrushev unusually active and visible and Shoigu unusually low-key. And as I said, okay, maybe in part because, because of illness, but more broadly. When he did speak, it was very, very much a kind of low-key, matter-of-fact, briefing with none of the rhetorical flourishes of so many other figures you know as everyone tried to kind of reinvent themselves as a, a frothing hawk and this is why there was this view and i think i would subscribe to it that shoigu was not necessarily in the party of peace but was certainly in the party of silence keep your head down and see what happens and in July, this changed. And I think this is the trouble. Yes, he was keeping his head down and seeing what happens. And what he has realized is precisely he must now bend to the prevailing winds. So this is what I would say Shoigu's turn suggests about power in Putin's new state. It is obviously very, very complex. It is personalistic, yet at the same time framed by institutions that ideology is essentially narrative and the capacity to shape and use it are absolutely essential. And obviously, utility to Putin and the system matters. I mean, this is why you still have you know, technocrats like you know, Mishustin and Sabyanin and Nabulina and so forth, not just in government, but still with a significant role. You know, they may not be Putin's mates. They may not at all get a chance to, to shape policy, but it matters that they're good at executing it. But the key point is exactly, you really need to have the, the soft power with Putin. That means, look, I am your friend. I am in tune with you. I am loyal to you. I am useful to you. And I have powerful institutional backing, which is why also, you know, I, I am someone needs to be listened to. And so in that context, Shoigu was forced to make a choice. And seeing the danger to his own position, he adopted, even if incompletely, the new line. Now, this is not like, oh, for the ridiculous example of Dmitry Medvedev, desperately trying to curry favour with hawks who frankly despise him, 
by seeking to sound even more hawkish than them. You know, this is, this is not that kind of undignified situation. Shoigu has weight of his own. He has the capacity to chart his own course to a degree, but only within the new currents of Putinism, Petrushevism. So he, he may be on his way out. Um, you know, he, he may yet become that uh, Siberian plenipotentiary, even if without the ambitious budgets. Um, obviously, much of it depends on whether or not Putin is willing to see churn within the security leadership. You know, Putin tends to default to trying to keep things as they are. He's very conservative in that respect. You know, but in the meantime, Shoigu is doing what he does well, PR. I mean, just consider what he's done. You know, after that long period of relative silence, in just the last week, he went to Yekaterinburg to meet and support uh, a new volunteer battalion that's being set up there. He went to nearby Nizhny Tagil to visit the Ural Zavod tank works and again make a point about the importance of continuing to produce high-quality military materiel. He went to Tula, again to visit the Shupunov Design Bureau, but while he was there, he also had something of a confab with none other than the current governor, you know, the Dumin who didn't get to be GRU chief, and yet who may well still have a significant role in the future. And again, this is Shoigu a, making sure that he has links with someone who does clearly have an additional type of line into Putin, but also who is a quite a significant regional player. He went to Kolomna, again, to go and, and, and visit a um, machine building uh, design bureau, but did so in the company of Varabyov, who was his successor as head of the Moscow region. Again, part of the, the you know, the regional dimension of power, which I think is often underplayed, but is actually really important in, in, in Russian politics. What else? He handed out three Hero of Russia medals, again, in a, in, a, in a celebration. And the interesting thing is that of those three, two of them were Tatars. And again, all of a sudden, we have a regional dimension, um, because the, 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 the Tatar regional leadership um, very much kind of expressed their support for Shoigu, their appreciation of his fine words and such like. And then on Friday, he gave the primary report at a meeting of the Security Council, one of the smaller closed meetings of just permanent members. I mean, this is almost as much activity as you'd almost get in a month in the previous point. Okay, I'm slightly caricaturing that. Yeah, but nonetheless, it is clear that he has changed gear. And his language is also changing. Now, again, as I say, he, he's not trying to do a mediative. But on the other hand, he is now talking much more about the wider political, geopolitical context of what's going on, rather than just simply reading out a, a, a series of statistics about you know, battle lines move forward and villages taking control. These are the activities of a man who realises that he has some political ground to make up. And again, I think this is why there was this uh, reconciliation moment at Navy Day with, with Putin. I think it was quite, it was symbolic for both of them, important for both of them. And so if earlier he was trying to avoid being connected with the war, insofar as the defense minister can, now he is trying to demonstrate that he is active so that I would suggest, you know, before he was trying to ensure that he couldn't be blamed for the war, now he's seeking to ensure that he can't be blamed for not prosecuting the war enthusiastically if it goes badly. 
And thus, and this is the last point I'll make, I think this gives us a window into the thinking of the sort of inner but pragmatic political elite. That is, that as far as they're concerned, I think they accept that this is the new normal, that this war or this struggle with, whether it's Ukraine militarily or the West in political economic terms, is not going to end soon, and that therefore they have to just simply adapt to that. Hopes that there will be divisions within the elite, hopes that there will be some who will be agitating for peace or some kind of climb down. I think it's clear that certainly for the moment that's not happening. So the war is lasting, but also that it's not going well. There is a recognition of that, whatever the kind of bullish rhetoric that we get, and that people like Shoigu are in some ways beginning to prepare for that, that moment when people start looking for scapegoats. And someone like Shoigu, whatever else he is, he is a survivor. And he's trying to make damn sure that he's not going to end up taking the blame when it comes to that. So this is my not particularly edifying take as a way of ending my sort of thoughts on how the, the apparent transformation of Shoigu tells us something not just about him as a person, not just something about how Russian politics works, but also about how people with the kind of in insider insight that he must have are assessing what's going on. And I think the bottom line is, uh, to very few people's surprise, that they are realizing they've bitten off more than they can chew, but that they cannot stop chewing. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.